Hello, and welcome to episode 58 of the Tennis Abstract podcast. I'm Jeff Sackman from TennisAbstract.com, and with me as usual is my co-host, Carl Bialik. Hi there, Carl. Hey, Jeff. Carl is also the host of the 30 Love Tennis podcast, which is up to 100 and something episodes, so definitely dig into the archive if you haven't checked out Carl's conversations with various folks from around the tennis world. So... This past week was the first Clay Court Masters event of the year, so I think we'll have a lot to talk about with the Monte Carlo Masters. And the biggest stories are, I think, not the players who won, but the players who lost, and those are our two favorites for, or at least were our favorites, probably still are our favorites for the Clay Court season, Rafael Nadal and Novak Djokovic. Neither one made it to the final, which is particularly shocking in the case of Rafael Nadal, winner of 11 previous Monte Carlo Masters. He lost in the semifinal to Fabio Fanini, and Carl, we've both watched this match by now. Um, how did he do it? I mean, we've seen Fanini beat Nadal on clay before, also on hard, but more often than not, he loses, and you got to favor Nadal in every clay court match he ever played. What made this match different? I think... It was a combination of the somewhat passive Rafa we've seen at times in recent years. I, well, I guess throughout his career, he's come out every now and then. It's just rare to see him in such a big match on clay where um, he's you know, leaving the ball short and high, giving his opponent a ton of time on the ball, uh, standing way back on serve returns, and throwing in for good measure in this match, especially in the second set, just a lot of inexplicable errors. But on the on the passive front, I think it's notable for two reasons against Fonini. One is you can't really get away with it. Like, if you leave balls short and give Fonini a lot of time, which Clay uh, accentuates, then he can put away or at least... Um, take over a point with balls like that uh, from both sides. And, I mean, that's really his weapon is is you give him time on ground strokes. Then add to that when he's at net, I think there are shots that Rafa kind of gets away with against other players, most other players, when they're at net where it puts them in an awkward position. They're trying to put away a ball they can't really put away because they know if they don't put it away, Rafa has a forehand on the next passing shot, and Fonini can put those away. And then the third thing is, Fonini is not a very big server, but if you, he's probably one of the five or ten weakest servers in the top fifty. Would you agree with that? Um, yeah, worst ten, I guess. I hadn't really thought okay. about it, but yeah, I mean, he certainly wasn't getting much gist off of his serve in this match. That's for sure. He wasn't, and Rafa was giving him a big edge by standing way back because Fonini can place his serve, so he was getting positional advantage early in the point just by hitting angled serves and um and Rafa stuck with it I mean to see a scoreline of 6-4-6-2 suggests that whoever adjusted better from the first set was was Fonini and in fact Fonini served for it at five love and had some match points so yeah it was it was really baffling that um not so much that Fonini can out hit Rafa and win a set off Rafa but that the second set was even more one-sided. Yeah, that surprised me too. Like I, I watched the match pretty soon after it ended, so I'd, I'd seen some of the live commentary and then went and, and 
watched it from the beginning and was struck that like, up to 4-4 in the first set, like, it wasn't a good performance from Nadal, but it it wasn't really tilting in Fanini's favor. It was the kind of match that we've seen before where Rafa comes out slow and it looks like the other guy has a chance and then boom, so he, some switch gets flipped and Rafa starts dominating. I mean, from, from 4-4 in the first set, I wouldn't have been surprised if the score went exactly the opposite of how it did, like 6-4, 6-2 Rafa instead of 6-4, 6-2 Fanini. But instead, Rafa really went off the rails. And I'm curious, we saw we saw Nadal come back a little bit after those match points you mentioned. I think Fanini had 40-love, 5-love in the, the second set. Nadal saved the match points, broke serve, or I guess he was holding serve, then broke Fanini, held again. I'm sorry, I'm getting this totally wrong. He won two games, that's that much Yeah, he clear. broke Fanini, then held, then Fanini served it out on his second chance. Okay, so he, got the, he saved the match points, got the break, and then held. So he managed to come back a little bit. And the thing that a couple people have said after this match is, okay, Fanini got this win in... in in a best of three match, seeing Nadal's little fight back at the end, knowing that Fanini didn't dominate the entire match, do you think Fanini would have won this match if it had been best of five? Yes. I mean, yeah, it's yeah, it's possible Rafa could straight set him, which is what it would take to win the last three sets, which is what he would have had to do. But yes, I mean, this wasn't it was the same conditions, the same day, the same court, all those things. And Fonini was, was a better player by a big margin. It wasn't, you know, six, four, seven, six. Yeah. And it's been a while since Rafa's played. Like he, he missed Miami due to injury in his, his last term before that was Indian Wells that he pulled out of before uh, the semifinal with Federer. So still dealing with some injury stuff, maybe a little bit more than usual. He, he could be forgiven for being a little bit rusty how how much of this loss do you attribute to that? Like, do, do you do you think that after Barcelona he'll get back in form and and be the Rafa of old, and this will just be another crazy Fanini upset to to add to the list? Yeah, I think it's really hard to weigh because of just how conflicting the evidence is. I mean, I think we've talked about how little you can take from match to match from a player in terms of expecting that his level in one match, even at the same tournament on the same court, will persist in the next one. But what I find difficult is if you if you had hit pause on results just before the Fonini match started and and asked us to assess Rafa making this this return to the circuit on clay after, as you said, his withdrawal at Indian Wells, We'd say, damn, he had three wins, no sets dropped, three pretty good opponents. Um, Guido Pella, that's how you say his name? I think it's Pella. Pella. Confusing. Um, I, I, I should know this, sorry, especially because this guy, do you know what he's ranked in ELO on clay? I just looked that up as well. He's just ahead of Fanini at number six. Yeah, which I looked at the results and I was surprised, but he, he plays a lot on clay and wins a lot of matches. And, you know, Rafa had beaten him in the quarters, and then he'd beaten two guys who aren't exactly clay specialists and Dimitrov and Batista Agut, but are still very good opponents, and he'd beaten them emphatically. So with with three matches like that, it, it's it's hard to just chalk up the Fanini result to 
him not quite quite being back, um, you know, still still getting his his feet set. And we've seen so many times over the years him coming into the clay season in Monte Carlo off of an injury or disappointment in the North American hard courts and then just immediately dominating. So I think this says a lot about this matchup and when Fonini is playing at his best on clay that he could blow out anyone. And we've seen it before in his career, including in best of five Davis Cup matches. So um, I think it's just it's a bad draw for Rafa. And also, if he doesn't draw him, he could still, you know, run the table for the rest of the clay season. Now, so so yeah, there's definitely some players that Rafa matches up extremely well against. And I mean, it, it feels a little silly even to talk about who Rafa matches up well or poorly against on clay because he dominates almost everyone. But some more than others. And obviously, Fanini is one of the ones he he doesn't. But I'm wondering, is are other players going to going to start seeing this evidence pile up that you have to be more aggressive, you have to be more unpredictable. I mean, the extreme example of that is Kyrgios hitting the underhand serve, but Fanini's the guy who's had, I mean, you wouldn't say consistent results, but better than expected results against Rafa by by being very aggressive, like having the short backswing ground strokes from right on top of the baseline. Like, it's a style of play that most of the guys in their generation shy away from, but it seems to be the style of play that at least puts you in the match against Rafa. And one guy who does that is Daniel Medvedev, who was the one who upset Djokovic and and has really gone after players who he's an underdog against. Do you think that, that seeing the success of Medvedev, seeing Fanini beaten it all here do you think that's going to affect the way that that other players attack these guys maybe i mean i don't think especially with nadal i don't think this is news i think a lot of the upsets and near upsets have come when when players have been especially aggressive and some of the one-sided rafa wins have also come against players who are very aggressive and just missed a lot but they were still probably doing the right thing tactically they just weren't executing it um Medvedev to me is more is not quite as aggressive when when taking on the stars. Uh, partly because he doesn't he doesn't necessarily need to be like I mean Fonini can can also um, grind if he needs to. But Medvedev had a lot of long rallies against Djokovic and won a lot of them and um, seems seems pretty comfortable with that style in a way that is surprising first of all, against that opponent and also just like given his his body type and his um, increased ability to to blow players away. I think the thing with Medvedev is, yeah, it's a different it's a different type of aggression. And that sounds like the kind of thing a commentator would say. And I'd start yelling at my laptop. But yeah, there were several really long rallies in the Djokovic match. I think one of them got to 41 shots. But I, I looked into the Djokovic-Medvedev matchup after the Australian Open when Medvedev took a set from him in a hard court. And what what Medvedev was doing, what a number of other young players have done, is is gone after the Djokovic backhand, which is supposed to be the good side. And what I think they're doing is, I mean, they're not going for winners. They're, they're, not, they're not going for the extremes of aggression. But they're hitting really hard ground strokes that are keeping Djokovic... I don't want to say off balance, but they're they're keeping him from taking advantage of how great his ground strokes are. So maybe it takes ten or twenty shots sometimes to to really take advantage of that. But 
I think that in terms of how hard he's hitting his ground strokes, how consistently he's hitting them to the corners, um, I feel like he is attacking more than whoever the comparable guys are in the Djokovic-Nadal cohort. Like, I guess Gilles Simone is the the extreme in the other direction. He's the first person that came to mind. But even Fanini, when he's in, in grinding mode, like, he's not working these guys as hard as Medvedev does. And I think that's maybe where Medvedev's edge is. Yeah, that ma- that makes sense to me. Uh, you know, it's funny, though, you mentioned Simone, and I, I I don't know what you would advise Simone, but I wouldn't advise Simone to, to go out and be just all aggression because I think he actually can outgrind Djokovic. Everyone remembers or tries to forget the match at the Australian Open where Simone uh, pushed Djokovic into 100 unforced errors because he actually made Djokovic be the aggressor. Um, and he almost won that match. So I, I think it, with all these things, it just depends on where your your competitive advantages lie. Uh, even in a particular matchup, it, where it might make sense for most players to be aggressive, it might not for all. But yeah, so Medvedev and Fonini with different gifts and different approaches, both got very surprisingly good results. Has Simone ever beaten Djokovic? Uh, I will check. I'm, I, cert- I certainly don't remember any. I don't remember any. I guess I I hear your point about you know, Simone playing playing his game about almost beating Djokovic in that instance, but I mean there's no there's no points there's no prize money for almost beating someone. So I wonder whether you would tell Simone to do something different if if you were in his coach's box. Simone has <laughs> beaten a twenty year old Djokovic in 2008 and then lost the last 10 he's gotten to six deciding sets in those 10 matches so i guess djokovic outlasts him um wow in five of those 10 djokovic wins over simone it was 5-5 in the in the last set and then uh djokovic won at 7-5 so i don't i don't know if it's the tactics it's just something something about the end game. Yeah, I guess I wonder in those we never know what Simone could have done if he took a wildly different tactical approach and I'd imagine in general it would have been worse. But that's always the question. Like do you do you go with do you go out there with your best game like Ferrer against Nadal for example, uh, knowing that it's it's not as good as the other guy's best game or do you go and try something different knowing that it could it could make you look really stupid. See, I think that's unfair to Ferrer because I, I remember a bunch of matches against Nadal where he was way more aggressive than he usually was. That's true. That's a bad example. Um, the, um, you know, with, with Simone, I think partly what I'm thinking of is just moments of matches where he is suddenly aggressive and how suddenly uh, mediocre he seems, whereas I never think of him as mediocre in the, in the long rallies. Um, but you know, it's, it's certainly a thing that you could work on. It's also a thing that you could throw in as a changeup. I mean, one thing that we occasionally touch on and did touch on with Nick Kyrgios is not so much about changing your approach for a whole match, but changing your approach throughout a match and what effect that could have. And very few players seem to do that. Um, and that seems like precisely because very few players do it, that it could be quite effective. Yeah. Uh, so, 
I want to talk about Djokovic a little bit, but before we we move on from Fanini, he's he's got a career high now of twelve. He's got his first Masters title, and he's thirty one, thirty two. I think he's the second oldest first time Masters winner after John Isner. Um, and he is. We, we briefly touched on this in regards to Pela. Um, Fanini is right behind him at number seven in the Clay Elo ratings, but he's he's only at number twenty three in in elo and i feel like i ask you some variation of this question every week we've got another pretty pronounced gap between atp rankings and and elo rankings where Fanini's at 12 in the official ones and 23 in elo I mean, that that's a pretty substantial gap which one do you think is a better representation of his level right now well, it's it's a funny way to put it because his level right now and for the next couple of months is going to be on clay and I think um, Clay Elo is feels about right. Um, certainly could see him as in the top 10 of, of Clay contenders for the remaining tournaments, and he and Rafa are both going to be in Barcelona, um, along with Monte Carlo runner-up Dusan Lajevic, who, um, who had his career best result by far. Isn't Lajevic in Budapest? Oh, I thought I saw him in the... Oh, yeah, I may have mixed up the draws. Either way, they're all in action right after, which is great. Glad they're they're playing on. Uh, I'll trust you on this one. Um, and, yeah, I mean, off of clay, Fanini has not been a big factor uh, lately. Like, I guess he made the semis in Beijing against a pretty weak draw and the final in Chengdu against a weaker one. But... Um, you know, at a big, at big tournaments off of clay, he hasn't he hasn't done much in a while. So, I, I don't totally have good intuition for how to combine these rankings in my head into the overall elo. I know the overall elo is just every result goes into it, but uh, when a player plays a ton of clay tournaments and um, so has a lot of clay matches, then that should have a big impact in the overall ELO. And and I think it does in this case, but he's just been so poor off of clay. Uh, well, so and, yeah, I think, I think ELO, I trust ELO overall and on clay here. And in even on clay this year, he's been quite bad before Monte Carlo. I before think he, Monte Carlo. Yeah. He played all four South American swing tournaments, I think, and went over four. I could be off by one, but I don't, he, he didn't was win over three and then lost his only match in Marrakesh too. Okay, so he was over four, but only three in South America. But I, I, I think that came up in one of the first around the nets I did on the on the blog was, this is the first year in something like ten years that Fanini didn't win a, a single match in in the South American swing. So, at least based on his his clay results this year, we would not have seen this coming. But I guess that's the narrative with Fanini that uh, what we get from one day is not that predictive of what we get the next. Yeah, and he, I mean, I think you've basically debunked the idea that players can consistently be um, momentum players where if they win some matches in a tournament, they go far, but they often lose the first match. But that that has been Fonini's profile, more or less, for for a while, which has helped his ATP ranking more than his ELO. Yeah, and... Um... In this case, I'm not sure how, how this fits in with the momentum theory, but he was a point or two away from losing to Andre Rublev in the early rounds in Monte Carlo. Uh, 
I forget what the score was, but I, I think his win probability was down to 4% or 6% or something. And if, if you're down there against Rublev, you generally wouldn't expect to be competitive against Rafael Nadal a few days later. Uh, I don't know whether that means coming back gave him the momentum or he wasn't playing well that day and thus we wouldn't have expected him to have momentum. So not really clear what is being debunked or confirmed or otherwise <laughs> with, with his path through the draw. But he did, I mean, in between those two matches, he beats Verev and Chorich. So he had he had built up some of this non-existent phony momentum in between. Okay. Uh, so the other big name losing in Monte Carlo, of course, is Novak Djokovic. We've, we've talked about, we've already mentioned Medvedev and Djokovic a, a bit already. And I think Djokovic, we, we didn't have the same expectations because, I mean, of course, no one has the same clay court expectations as Rafael Nadal does. But at the same time, I think we, we all expected Djokovic to be the one guy to really threaten Nadal on clay this year. Uh, big, one of the big stories going into the French Open is that Djokovic holds three of the four Grand Slams. So if he can pull out this French Open, he'll, he'll have the, uh, the Novak Slam. He'll hold all four Grand Slams or the Serena Slam. I'm not sure what the official name is that, for that. Uh, but Medvedev is not someone you think of as a, a big threat on clay, although maybe that's changing now. Uh, I mean, what, what do you think about Djokovic at this point? Does the Medvedev loss change your estimation of his how much of a threat he is on clay this season? Hmm. Uh, maybe, maybe a little. I mean, it was it was three sets. He got a couple of wins in, although he really struggled against Cole Schreiber in in his first match. Um. I don't know. I mean, Djokovic has been poor since the Australian Open. I, this is the third time we're talking about an early round loss that we didn't expect. Um, and. It's it's really hard to fathom because of how he ended that Australian Open. Obviously, he won it. You just mentioned he won his last three major titles, um, but he he won his the the last two matches six zero six two six two six three six two six three against Puy and then more impressively Nadal. So you think coming off of that, like he's just primed to to dominate or at least win some of the masters coming up and he, by his standards has really struggled. So it wasn't that surprising to me that he lost in the quarterfinals. I agree. Clay isn't the surface where I would have expected Medvedev to get the win over Djokovic. Um, But it's, it's kind of consistent. And also maybe if we think there's something different about the grand slam, something different about best of five, maybe it's not particularly troubling for the French Open, it's also a long way from the French Open. He's going to play two more Masters, I, I think, and um, each each event is different in terms of how how the clay is playing. I think the balls change at times during the season too. So, yeah, I wouldn't I wouldn't put too much stock in it a month and a half before the French Open starts, but uh, it is consistent with him losing surprisingly in many of his recent tournaments. Have you seen Lajovic play lately? Some. Do you have any thoughts on on his game? Like what what drove his surprise run here? I, I'm 
No, I'm I'm pretty surprised. I mean, I I've liked him for a long time, but thought he didn't have enough power, and I think he's improved that somewhat. But still, I mean, he his run is overshadowed because Fanini straight set at him in the final, but it was really good. Like straight sets every match, including against Dominic Team. Yeah, I'm, and and it and this isn't the, he he this is backing up some other good recent results, so it it seems pretty real, um, but I I can't explain it well. Yeah, it, it is interesting the the mix of of who the clay quarters are these days. And we touched on this last week, and I'm not sure I explained myself very well last week, and I'm not sure I can do it now either. But there aren't very many clay court specialists who are. I mean, there aren't very many clay court specialists, period. And the ones who there are, are are not necessarily that great overall. So you've gotten it all. Obviously, you've got Diego Schwartzman. Um, I mean, Pella's got the, or Pella has the high ELO rating. We've got Leovic, who's had some good results uh, mixed in with some less impressive ones. Fanini seems like maybe he's a clay court guy first. But there aren't there there just aren't that many guys who are are primarily clay quarters and that's partly due to the structure of the tour it's tough to be primarily a clay quarter and get your ranking very high because there just isn't that much clay to to play on over the course of the year but that does seem to kind of open the door for these guys like Pele got his title earlier in the year um, because there just weren't that many top players who made the trip to South America I mean Laszlo Gera got his title uh, now now Leovich has his first Masters final, he had a couple decent runs. At, even at the Masters, I think he made the Madrid quarterfinals last year as well. And I'm not really sure what to take from that. Like, it, it doesn't mean that Leovich is suddenly, like, a, a top 20 player. I don't think he is. But it seems like we could have more surprises like this over the course of the clay court season because the guys that were watching the rest of the year, like, maybe maybe Sitsipas and Medvedev, although they both had some decent clay results, uh, some of these guys aren't as much of a factor. And maybe the Leoviches and Pelas of the world, uh, maybe as the rest of the field is a little bit weaker and less clay-focused than it was maybe 10 years ago, maybe this is their chance to shine. I don't know. Yeah, makes sense. Although this week could completely upend that too. By the way, I, I had in my memory that Leovich had some some good recent results and maybe I was just thinking of Miami, but he, this, this like with Fonini kind of came out of nowhere. What do you mean? Like he, he had also not gotten much out of, uh, South America. I mean, he got nothing in terms of points and wins. Uh, had one win in Indian Wells, two in Miami, uh, lost his first matches in Sydney in the Australian open. Yeah. he, He had not had a very good, 2019 before Monte Carlo and his ranking had been had been falling a bit so that that was for you know it was two guys who really were um who, who suddenly caught fire yeah it, it I hadn't thought about this but it, it is a strange uh, turn of events that you have two guys who didn't win a single match in several tries in South America went and made the finals in Monte Carlo I guess there's not really you can't build much of a, a good stat out of that because often the Monte Carlo finalists are guys who didn't go to South America at all, but in the years when they did, they would have been better than that. Um, one more thing on 
the ATP clay swing. We've got Barcelona coming up, and despite the semifinal loss, you've got to figure that Nadal is a huge, huge favorite there. You mentioned that Fanini's playing manner. I, I forgot to check where he's sitting in the draw. Um, not likely to face Nadal very soon. But Nadal could face Sitsipas in the quarters. That was his final in the, opponent in the final last year. And then potentially team in the semis, potentially Zverev, which seems a bit far-fetched, but potentially Zverev in the final. Um, I mean, team far-fetched? is Far-fetched? Well, I, I guess more just because... Maybe he's maybe he's the favorite out of several guys, but he's like a, a WTA style thirteen percent favorite. Um, and and Fonini is in that half, so maybe Fonini's the favorite in that half now. Yeah, uh, maybe a twelve point seven percent co favorite. I don't know. I did, but would you say of those guys, is Dominic Team still like the the main contender out of this group against Rafa? Uh, I mean, I think we have to make Fonini at least the co-main contender. But yeah, team is probably more likely to reach a match, especially because he's in that half. And he's beaten him three times, I think, on clay. And has been probably the second best clay court player overall in the last three years. Um, even though in ELO, he's not quite there. So yeah, I think he's he's the most likely single player to, to oust Nadal from this tournament. But it does, would without looking at your forecast, I would guess Rafa is nearly a 50% to win the tournament. Yeah, I actually didn't look at that either. Uh, 42%, which actually seems a bit low. I'm not sure whether that's after the Monte Carlo, the ratings were adjusted for Monte Carlo or not. It probably didn't make too much of a difference. You should check whoever produces the forecast. You see. Yep, I should. Well, it's probably been updated since I just load a ton of, of tabs before we start recording, and I'm not sure whether that tab was well, when exactly that was loaded. Uh, <laughs> okay, so is it, I, ha- I have our answer. He was 42.3% to win before the ELO ratings were updated. Now that the ratings were updated, he's down to 41.6. Although that might, okay. that might be partly because Leonardo Meyer upset Copil in the first round. No, that was he was the favorite. So I something like that. Um, but in any case, yeah, I've got him about about forty two percent. Fifty seems right. I mean, it 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 always feels wrong to to even give the field that much of a chance against Nadal, given how successful he's been at especially these three tournaments: Monte Carlo, Barcelona, and Roland Garros. But I mean, as we've discussed many times before, like if once you start giving someone a seven, pardon me, 70, 80% chance of winning a tournament, what that implies for their round to round chances just starts to seem ludicrous. I mean, you could expect him, you could, you could accept him having a 98% chance against Leonardo Meyer, but giving him, giving him another 95% chance or something against team or Zverev, that, that seems far-fetched to use my word of the moment. Do you happen to know the three men who have beaten Rafa at Barcelona? Mm, I should, but I, well, Almagro was one of them. Yep. Um, retire in peace, Nicholas Almagro. We haven't mentioned that, but his career is officially over. 
Yeah, uh, I've, I've got a one-handed backhand highlight reel of Nicholas Almagro on the Tennis Abstract main page. I uh, usually find out about retirements by going to Tennis Abstract and seeing who's in the video. Yeah, so we'll have we'll have Ferrer in there soon. What's really a shame is that these guys are retiring when Del Potro is hurt, because that means that Del Potro can't play their last matches. Is that his special skill? Well, I think I think he played the last match of Safin's career and maybe also the last match of Roddick's career. Yep, I remember the I was at the Roddick one. Okay. Yeah. I think back then it was kind of a it was a running joke that Del Potro was easing these guys into retirement. There might have been one more. I'm not sure, but it seems like a real missed opportunity to not have Ferrer play his last match against Juan Martin Del Potro. It could be like an exhibition circuit, like first match, first exhibition match after retirement is against Del Potro. Yeah, it sounds good. Um, did Team win one of the matches against Nadal? No. So who were the other two? Fonini. Oh, right. Yep. And then let me give you the year first and see if you can get it. 2003. Coria? Correcha. Correcha, right. And that wasn't in the final, was it? No, it was in the round of 32. Do you do you remember who Rafa lost to in Monte Carlo in 2003? I don't, and I won't cheat. That's uh, That was Coria. Ah, <laughs> uh, okay. So that's why you guessed it. The previous king of clay. Well, in general, it's a, it's a safe bet that I guess they didn't play that often. But if it feels like you're asking who won a notable clay match in 2003, it, Guillermo Corey is a good choice. Mm. Uh, he was the Nadal of his day, but unfortunately, his day did not last that long. And, then and he, he wasn't quite a Nadal. Well, yeah, that and he got caught doing something with chemicals he shouldn't have been doing. I don't remember the details, but uh, things did not work out quite so well for him as they did for Rafa. Um, so yeah, it will, it will be interesting to see how this turns out. I mean, we have seen one, I think it was 2015 where Rafa struck out in the clay season, but that's, I'm guessing the only one since 2005. So it has happened before, but it seems unlikely to happen again. Certainly wouldn't bet against him. Um, one more thing, actually, I've almost forgot about this, uh, this has been in our in our show notes for a while, and it keeps getting getting knocked off to future episodes. And Nadal is is probably the the primary guy associated with playing really slowly between points, taking his time, having his mannerisms, and both between points before the first serve and also between the first and second serve. And in general, the guy, the, the men and women who are are known for playing really slowly are often the best. I mean, Djokovic plays very slowly. Uh, Andy Murray played quite slow or plays. I'm not sure whether he's coming back. Uh, and some of the women who play slowly, like Venus Williams is one who comes to mind. Sharapova plays extremely slowly. Often they're the players who are at the top of the game. And I guess you don't pay as much attention to the pace of play for players who are maxing out at number 35 in the world. So maybe this is just some selective sampling going on. But it seems like there's a correlation and I'm wondering, do you think there's like a, an actual mental advantage or maybe an intimidation advantage to making the other player wait? Like, it, it, is there a reason for, 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 or some kind of relationship between these players taking so much time between points and 
the fact that they are so successful? It's definitely possible. Uh, I, I, I know I probably make too many baseball analogies on the show, but I think it's been found that pitchers slow down between pitches during their career and that if they're forced to sped up, it, it hurts them. So it makes sense to me that a player who is older than her opponent and could benefit from having more rest between points would would gain an advantage from taking more time between serves and and getting away with it. Um, in terms of like collecting thoughts, I think it's hilarious that you have Wozniacki on the list just because of what we talked about last week. Um, yeah, but she is what quite she's slow. About. Yeah, so you know, to me that suggests either that collecting thoughts is not that important, or that what I've always assumed players would be thinking about, which is where am I going to serve and what kind of serve, is not all of it, and it's also like reminding themselves of of tactics once they get into the points or you know, more abstract motivational um, or tactical mantras that, that help them focus. Um, I think when players have been asked about it, they mostly say they're not thinking about anything, but I don't know if they're being honest to us or to themselves when they say that. Yeah, it seems a bit far-fetched not to be thinking about anything, but if that's true, maybe that's the the advantage. Is it? It's like meditation. Yeah, well, and the flip side of that is that if if they're spending that time not thinking about anything, then maybe that's an advantage over the person at the other side of the net who has to think about something. I mean, I guess when you're returning against Nadal, you know you have a lot of time, but you'll often see players be ready and be bouncing around and, and, and ready to return well before there's any chance Rafa is going to deliver a serve. Uh, and that means that they're just poised to attack for often 30 seconds. I mean, it can be three times as long as, as some of the faster players play. And if, I, th- I would think that would be harder. Like, you can't just just let your mind float when the other guy could be ready at any time. Uh, and you have to wonder whether that's where the advantage is, whether or not it's making... Nadal better or, or Wozniacki better. Uh, maybe it's making the returner worse. I don't know. It's too bad no one is just like mimicking the um, the server's ritual because then you know that you'll finish when they do, and you really might piss them off. <laughs> yeah, I think someone did that to me in in juniors, and it succeeded in pissing me off a great deal. What was your ritual? I don't remember what it was. I don't think I really had a ritual, but I must have been doing something. Uh, it might have just been at a single tournament or something, but I, I, rem- I remember the mimicry. Uh, and obviously, it has stuck with me decades later. All right, it's a tip for playing Jeff, everyone. Yeah, I, th- I think I'm mentally stronger now. I hope I'm mentally stronger now. I also don't think you have a ritual. No, and apparently I play quite fast. That's what most people have told me. Do you think I play fast? Faster than average, yeah, definitely. Okay. Uh, I had one... I might have told you about this, Carl. I I had one opponent 
for for years who decided one day that I was playing too fast and I was putting him off of his game. So he developed this whole returning ritual. And I think it was specifically about me. He, he wasn't doing it against other opponents, but he would very deliberately walk back to the the fence and, you know, tinker with his strings and, and then come back and make make it clear that he wasn't ready until he got back in his position and looked up and probably wasn't more than 10 or 12 seconds, but ugh, that was aggravating. I still, See, still beat him, though. I, I feel like the mimicry would be more annoying to people, but what you just described is against the rules of tennis. Yes and no. That's the thing. We, it, oh, yeah, we've talked about this. It's vague, right? Yeah. I think the rules say that you the returner must be ready within a reasonable amount of time. Uh, and I think in, in amateur play, that normally just gets translated into be ready when the server is ready. Uh, and that seems, unless the server is just like, uh, obnoxiously quick serving you then that that seems reasonable and courteous and shouldn't get in the way of having a good time and a productive match but at the professional level you've got all these other factors going into it as well so you see Nadal just walk away or not just Nadal but tons of players will go for their, their towel to return so when you go for your towel that's going to be 15 seconds to get ready and a lot of guys including Ferrer, Kyrgios, Malfi, several others, they're going to be ready to serve before that, and occasionally you'll see one of those guys complain. Uh, so what is, you asked me what I thought was the advantage. What what do you think it is? I'm not sure. I, I, I would lean toward the putting the returner at the disadvantage, like giving them more time to think and prepare than they would want. Uh, the other thing I wonder is if it's because and this might change with the the increasing prevalence of the serve clock, but it also might be that the top players are just more able to get away with it. They can count on getting away with it, so they can develop longer routines. As, as you say, a lot of these players have gotten slower as they've gotten older, like, like baseball pitchers apparently do. Um, but at least Nadal's always been pretty slow. Another player who's always been slow is Maria Sharapova, but she's also been, like Nadal, she's been great pretty much since she arrived on tour. So she's not someone who a chair umpire is going to to, to feel like she can just hold strictly to the rules. I mean, it, it feels wrong to say that, that the chair umpires feel that way, but I'm pretty sure that's, that's how it works. So it might be that other players would want to slow down, but they don't have the opportunity or they've been called for time violations too many times. Maybe we'll see that gap start to to narrow when the the serve clock is in place at more tournaments. Do you you know we're talking about the mean here, uh, but the standard deviation differs between players. Some players are extremely consistent, some players not at all. And I'm wondering, would that have an even bigger advantage in throwing off for a turn? Like if I know it's pretty much always going to be 21 seconds, that's pretty different between not being sure if it's going to be 12 or 34. Yeah, and that, that's what makes me think that returning against Rafa shouldn't be as much of a mental challenge as some of the other slow players because not only is he consistently slow, he's consistently slow with this sequence of mannerisms. So it's almost like you can you can look over and see what step of the process Nadal's in and know how much time you have left. Uh, I don't think that's true with someone like Djokovic. Like if you see him on his fifth bounce, you don't know whether that's his last bounce or whether there's 20 more to come. I guess he isn't as bad as he used to be, but there's still the possibility he'll 
he'll bounce it 10 or 12 times. Uh, yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure. Uh, so I'm sure people have other opinions about that. I would, uh, I, this is one of those things where I'd love to get input from players, but I probably wouldn't trust what players would say in press conferences about it. Like, like you pointed out at the beginning of this, this, this segment that, um, players will say they're not thinking about anything and maybe that's true, but that's not very helpful. Uh, I guess we could hook players up to, to brain scanners, but that might impede their lateral movement a little bit. Yeah, I think that would only probably be allowed at the at the French Open as sort of like an art installation. <laughs> yeah, maybe maybe some people are doing something like that in at training camps. I don't know. It, it, it there have been a few articles lately. Like I think I sent you one from Sports Illustrated about the the proliferation of of technological aids in baseball training, like. Um, measuring swing speed and all, all, all sorts of, of biological markers in, in hitting and pitching. We don't have that nearly as much for tennis, but it could be on the way. Maybe one of those things will give us more of a sense of what's going on in players' minds when they're waiting. I mean, I think the, the Tennis Australia group did something looking at players' body language, and it wasn't specifically to this point, but that might tell you something. Like if, if you can somehow see visual cues that say that a returner is becoming more uh, more tense or something in, in the course of waiting 30 seconds for a serve to come. But that's a bit far-fetched. Uh, okay, so we also had the Fed Cup semifinals. Uh, just before we jump yeah. to Fed Cup, uh, one very quick sort of follow up to something we've talked about before. There are quite a few American men in the Barcelona draw. And Mackenzie McDonald won his first rounder today, I noticed. Yeah, two and two. Anyway, since we, we've been talking about this sort of underlying this story of a clay season that probably only American tennis fans care about of will the American men uh, play more matches than they absolutely have to. I thought that was impressive. And Fritz uh, got a couple rounds in in Monte Carlo, so that sort of vindicated that decision. Yeah, I was surprised to see that not only that he made the trip, but he was the only American to do so. But yeah, good for him. Uh, and yeah, I, mean, I think Dennis Kudlow went to Budapest. He's always been more of a, a clay court guy than a lot of his American peers. He lost. Kudlow's his first... in Barcelona too. He had, oh right he lost, he lost to, a hung- to a Hungarian, Hungarian. player yes yes okay uh, yeah so good for him good for him for showing up not for losing to Fucevic but yeah that's always always interesting to follow uh, maybe it'll be Mackenzie McDonald's year to to make a a breakthrough on clay since I forget he maybe he just won one match in Australia but he was he was impressive in doing so. Uh, but yeah, we should switch over to the Fed Cup. We can, well, I think we'll have more occasion to talk about the, the American men over the course of the clay season. So France beat Romania at home and Australia beat Belarus also at home. So we have the, the Fed Cup final set between France and Australia. Uh, let's see where to start with all of this. 
one thing to keep in mind, I want to come back to this a bit, but this could be the last traditional Fed Cup. I mean, there's the talk that the the peakification of the Davis Cup is going to extend to Fed Cup next year as well. So this could be the last traditional home-and-home tie year of, of Fed Cup. And it's been a good one. Uh, France has really good doubles depth. Um, some good singles players starting with Caroline Garcia. Australia has basically the Ashley Barty show. She won all three of the tie, the rubbers against um, against Belarus, including a really easy win against Arena Sabalenka. And this seems like a pretty textbook example of, of a team effort versus a star between France and Australia in the final. And I'm curious, Carl, we're still six months away or something from the final, and a lot could happen in the meantime. But uh, how do you see that one playing out? On current form, I think Barty could win three matches again, so I, I favor Australia. And do you think it would be Barty Stozer in the doubles again? Uh, I don't know. I mean, I think Australia has other options, but Stozer has a great doubles resume. Um I, yeah, I think I think that would be a pretty good team for the final. It's interesting that the the French, well, their semifinal was against Romania and was really really close. the The third match between Caroline Garcia and Simona Halep went exactly three hours, uh, going to Halep in the third set. Uh, the the fourth rubber Parmentier and. Irina Camelia Begu also went to three sets and then they had to play the deciding doubles rubber. Uh, Halep came back out to play that with Monica Nicolescu. But the French team was Garcia Mladenovic, who had been extremely successful in the past, but some personal and or scheduling differences killed that partnership. And I'm, I'm wondering, I, I can't think of other examples in Davis Cup, Fed Cup history where there have been partners who split up acrimoniously and then ended up playing together again. I'm sure there are examples, but uh, would you would you have expected problems from that, from players who decided not to play together, having to join forces again in like a really high-pressure situation like this? I mean, it seems like the sort of thing that happens or could happen at every stage of a tennis career, like... You're a junior, and you're you, you're partnered up with someone who you have some some beef with, um, and I don't know these these feuds feel magnified because certain segments of of tennis that we talked about like seem to mostly like tennis for feuds, but um, I don't know. I think tennis players are used to going out on court against someone and wanting more than anything to beat them and for them to suffer and, 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 you know, not be able to handle playing you and to lose and then to being your friend because players have friends on tour among the players they're competing with. So I don't know. I feel like these, these things tend to heal pretty quickly. Players are pretty pragmatic. They know there are lots of formats that could affect who they're playing with or against. Uh, I, I, I guess the sort of, unspoken thing is if there really were such a problem then that's not the team that would have gone out like if it would have created a problem on court it probably would have come out during the week and a different pair would have would have played yeah that's probably true and and one thing that i think is overlooked in a lot of these conversations about doubles pairs not getting along is that you don't have to 
get along that much to play good doubles. Like it's, it it feels like you're you're playing very closely together because there's only two of you. And we often talk about doubles teams who are together as a unit for years on end. But to play one match, it's not that different than than being two players on the same baseball team. Like, I guess you, you've got to agree or at least accept one player's leadership on where serves are going and some basic tactical stuff. But, I mean, basically you're hitting serves and then trying to return the ball when people hit it at you. It's, there's not a lot of, of, a lot of teamwork so much as just, like, good doubles tactics being executed. And at least in the case of Mladenovic and Garcia, like, we know they're both extremely good at doubles. So there, there's no problem in them just executing well unless one of them is immature and the feud is really really serious but like you say the fact that julian benito sent them out there um would indicate that it wasn't such a big deal yeah and you know i think you you also hinted saying else that's at play here which is yeah to to play one match really well is really different than like going out on tour together i mean when i've talked to some doubles teams They've suggested it does matter quite a bit to have some like personal chemistry because you could split up at any moment because uh, losses can really pile up and and hurt and like you need the sort of trust to be able to talk about them and even if you're not best friends like I think you do need to have some sort of off court uh, connection and ability to communicate really well but in this case they just need to go out and play that one match really well and it's not like they would have to break it down afterwards because it was over and they weren't going to play that team again. So, um, yeah, I think, I think in this setting, especially, you know, the, the sort of similar example that comes to mind, maybe because I was there was the, um, 2014 Davis cup final when Federer and Vavrinka had just had some kind of very ugly feud at the world tour finals. And then the very next week we're supposed to like play together for Switzerland against France. And, they were just fine. Like they settled things. And that was a couple of guys who had a really long history of including playing doubles, but so did, so did Garcia and Mladenovic. So, um, yeah, not surprised. Yeah. Um, they are, they are pros and even, even young pro, I mean, they've both been on tour for a long time. Even, even players who are relatively new to the tour aren't new to the life. Like they've been playing doubles with various partners at high profile events for, I mean, most of their life in many cases, at least since since uh, Grand Slam doubles, junior Grand Slam doubles events and things of that nature. So, Jeff, I meant, yeah, you 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 described Garcia and Mladenovic as both being excellent doubles players, and they had a tough match against Romania. And I know Nicolescu can play some doubles. Since you're a Halep expert, what is your take on her doubles game? Because I would not think in general that her incredible single success would translate all that well to doubles. I wouldn't think so either. I, I haven't even watched her play doubles very much. Uh, the The worst moment of my, uh, my trip to Indian Wells last year was my poor planning and inability to make it to, to the court where she was playing her first round doubles match before it completely filled up. So I missed that opportunity. But, um, I mean, she doesn't play doubles very much. And she doesn't come to the net very much when she plays singles. Like like a lot of players who don't play at net very much, she has her her moments of brilliance. It's not the net play that's the problem. I think it's the transition game and just the mental block of of sort of being afraid of the transition game and the half volley, first volley type of thing that 
isn't really something that gets taught too much these days. I think all of that's missing from her game. So you're never going to see her serve and volley in doubles or, or be that aggressive. Um, that said, like it feels like we're we're flipping flipping the script between us here. Like you've made this point on a number of occasions. You can be a pretty good doubles player by having a really good baseline game these days. Uh, maybe that's more true on the men's side for the Mark Lopez's of the world than it is in the women's game. I'm not really sure, uh, but I, I I think the bigger problem might just be not having a ton of doubles experience and to some extent the tra- transition game stuff, but I'm not sure how much I would hold her back. I mean, it was a competitive match. It went to went to three sets, and I mean, Nicolescu's good, but she's not tremendous. So the fact that Halep and Nicolescu pushed the former, I think they were the former number one doubles team in the world, to a third set, and that's, that's a pretty good data point in their favor. I'm not sure I have more to add to it than that. Yeah, I, and the only thing I would say is, yeah, that that all makes sense. It is a script I've been on. The the thing that I wonder about with with players like Halep in terms of what her strengths are is more how much like are those strengths neutralized when they're just covering half the court? Like how much does it help that she can cover every ball when covering every ball is a lot easier in doubles? Um, but but yeah, being a good being a great singles player does generally make you at least a good doubles player. Yeah, that's a good point with with um, with court coverage, and I guess another player who falls into that category is Wozniacki, and she's never—I don't think she's ever chosen to play very much doubles. Maybe same thing with Svitolina. That would be an interesting thing to look into. I'm not sure exactly how you'd quantify court coverage, but if you could quantify that to see whether that correlates well or poorly with doubles success. Yeah, I mean, Djokovic comes to mind, although Nadal has had a great doubles career and a uh, great doubles elo, so uh, it doesn't totally apply in the men's side. Yeah, yeah, that's 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 interesting. It, it seems like, yeah, men men's doubles players come from all walks of singles life, uh, including the the extremes at both, both sides, like Nadal and then Isner at the opposite end, who's been a very solid doubles player over the years. So... One last thought before we wrap up this episode. I, I mentioned in passing that this could be the last uh, the, the last old format Fed Cup with the, the Davis Cup switching format this year. Uh, and I think we talked about this in a previous episode as well. Uh, I mean, it, it, we haven't seen how the Davis Cup plays out, how successful it is. I'm, maybe the Fed Cup is waiting to get more of a sense of that as well. But, I mean, what what's your opinion, Carl? Do you think the Fed Cup will would benefit from from the new format or would it be better off like i think someone maybe it was christopher clary someone on twitter suggested that that it, it's an opportunity for the wta or not the wta but the fed cup anyway to um to sort of carve out its own niche by being the one remaining stalwart of the traditional format like what do you think they should do yeah I, i'm not surprised someone made that argument because that one occurred to me that nostalgists may just you know, be more into Fed Cup than they used to be. Um, I I think Fed Cup maybe is in a good position because they can kind of wait and see how how Davis Cup is being received. I mean, so far it's not being received well. People hate change. We've talked about that. But although if in a couple, of, sorry, sorry. I, 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 yes, people hate change, but most of the people in that category are people who tweet a lot. 
I'm not sure how much tennis fans really hate change or hate this format. Yeah, I was thinking that's true. I was thinking of, you know, the commenta- commentary class for sure. But also, I mean, like, I think PK is still peaked that Federer was criticizing it. Um, Leighton Hewitt is, crit- you know, like a lot of players and former players have, have criticized true. it. Um, and yeah, let's see when, once people actually experience it, once we see who shows up, you know, how people react. Uh, Fed Cup doesn't need to. I, I, there's no urgency, I think, in Fed Cup acting. Um, I, I'm also interested in, like, you know, th- there's so much pride, I think, in tennis that the Grand Slams give equal pay, but also so much um, sort of trying to hush up the fact that everywhere else in the sport, it's not at all equal. And, you know, to what extent do people like Davis Cup and Fed Cup already were not equal in terms of media coverage and I imagine TV rights. And I don't know about player pay. Do you know? I have no idea. I I thought that in at least up till this year when the, the, the PK infusion means that there's official prize money for the Davis Cup finals. I think that in the past there was no prize money for Davis Cup or Fed Cup. It's just a matter of how much federations give to their players. And that's on a country by country basis. So, yeah, I mean, I imagine some federations are, are choosing not to um, pay equally. And, you know, the, the formats weren't even equal in terms of number of teams in the number of countries in the knockout stages. So, you know, PK, it, it's interesting to think of like PK coming from a sport that is so men dominated and men take such a large percentage of the money and, you know, infusing all this money into the men's side of these, um, the world cup of tennis, um, what happens to the women's world cup of tennis? Like that also will be interesting. Like, is there, is there that infusion that's directed in, in that way? Um, so I think it's a format question and also just like an investment question. Yeah. It will be interesting to see what happens there. Like, I, I think I made this point on a previous podcast, so I won't belabor it, but one reason that I think the the Fed Cup would really benefit from from the sort of 18-team jamboree that the Davis Cup has become is that there's so many levels, and there's the extra level in the, on the women's side of having World Group and World Group 2, so two 18 World Group tiers instead of one 16-team in the traditional Davis Cup. So that means that when teams are climbing through the ranks and ultimately trying to win this thing, like there's one more year standing between them and winning the fed cup and this is this is again driven by press coverage but i read a lot about the uh the the tie in in london this past weekend between great britain and kazakhstan so i think this was the first time in 26 years that that the brits got into the world group which makes for a great headline it's a great story sounds like some of the tennis was really entertaining but yeah they're in world group but they're in world group too like they've fought so hard for this and they, they're not going to win Fed Cup next year. They have to win a couple ties next year to get into World Group 1 in 2021 and compete in 2020, 2021 when Johanna Conta might be retired or injured or who knows what and all this will be for naught. Whereas getting into World Group would mean if there were the 18-team competition, they'd be in it. They'd have a chance to win, not this year, but next year a year sooner than they would be in the traditional format and i think that would make it the whole event a lot more compelling maybe the pk format isn't the solution but i understand why fans 
find it hard to really get into Fed Cup when this big win really isn't that meaning meaningful unless you're thinking in the really long term. Yeah, I mean, even even just adopting the previous Davis Cup format would flatten things out a little bit. Yeah, I mean, then you have the scheduling problem of finding four weekends across the, the whole season. I mean, it, it, it's tough any way you go. I mean, you run into these problems uh, with, with any type of adjustment to the tennis calendar. So it's not something we can fix in our remaining zero minutes of episode 58. But so, I will, yes. in, in negative seven seconds of it, just say, if Fed Cup goes Davis Cup way, they could have some joint events down the line. They could. Yeah, that sounds like fun. I'd travel for that. Um, okay, one last thing in our remaining <laughs> negative one minute. Did you see the news, Carl, that, that, that they made a couple slight format tweaks for the 2020 Olympics? I, no, I missed it. Okay, so the, the main one that I wanted to talk about was... Uh, they switched to best of three tiebreak sets in the men's final. Oh, yes. Yes, so I did see that. In the past, it's been best of three in, until the final. But then was it was it best of three non-tiebreak in the final or was it best of five in the final? I forget which It was, was best of five in the final. And at least in 2012, it was best of three not tiebreak in the third set. Because remember right, um, Federer Del Potro 2012. And wasn't there a a wild Ronich Sangha match or something like that that went way beyond 6-6. I might be remembering one of those one of the players wrong. But in any case, it's it seems like a minor tweak, but at the same time like there, there's not that many opportunities to play beyond 6-6 in tennis anymore and they they seem to be shrinking every year. Do you think this is I mean is this just a cosmetic thing to you? Does it does it matter? Do you have feelings on it? I think I'll miss it. There were some classics. Um, on the other hand, it's once every four. It's one event every four years. I think if we're thinking about format changes and how they affect tennis, the the Grand Slam changes are much bigger. So, yeah, I mean, I, the Olympics have much bigger fish to fry. And if this is like a way to make the Olympics run on time better or, or make TV coverage make more sense, uh, you know that. It's very hard to see like how many things might go into a decision like this. Maybe it just came from tennis, um, but it yeah, it's not affecting that many matches over four years anyway. That's true. I'm guessing it did just come from ITF at this point, but you never know who might be influencing them, namely broadcasters. Um, yeah, I guess I, I'm a I'm a little bit sad because a the Olympics is I mean, yes, it's rare, but on the same token, it's it's such a unique event that it's it's giving up some of that uniqueness. Um, there's no tradition to it, really, since I feel like they're changing the rules often, but feels like they could have carved out their own little corner. But also, this is, this is something that the commentary class loves, is that the fact that so many finals used to be best of five. Uh, and there's with every little tweak like this, it, it seems like we're getting further away from ever getting that back. Uh, which is is a bit of a shame. I don't know whether that I would have needed to watch five sets of Fanini Lajovic yesterday, but I feel like we might be missing some opportunities without at least best of five finals. Uh, I wouldn't push for anything beyond that. But but every little time that a set becomes tiebreak or a five setter becomes a three setter, then it, it it feels like the whole tennis world is becoming more homogenized, and the only opportunities to experiment with it become Labor Cup style no ad, super tie breaks, just shorter, 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 
without any push in the opposite direction, which I think in the end is, is a shame. Jeff, quick uh, blog post idea for you. How often with best of five finals in the past, and especially, and then specifically when they went five sets, did the finalists uh, pull out of the next week's tournament if they were if they had been entered? I guess that's probably impossible to get, right? The data isn't there on who pulls out of tournaments before they start. Yeah. Okay. You'd... Kill that blog post idea. <laughs> yeah. The, the, yeah. I guess the the only exception would be things like Madrid, Rome, and Canada, Cincinnati. I'm, I I think those have all. Well, Madrid hasn't been a clay court event for that long, but I think Canada Cincinnati have been back to back weeks for a long time. So at least in in a couple of cases, you would assume that they, that that everyone's entered the following week. So Rome some... used to be Hamburg, so you could do it from that. Right. Okay. So so it would it would maybe work. I mean, you could at least look at how much they're playing the following week if they're successful the following week, things like that. Uh, and and see if that changes, but I'm um, yeah, it might not be enough data to come up with anything meaningful. It's an interesting idea, though. Uh, so on that note, five minutes after starting to talk about ending the episode, it is finally over. Thank you, Carl, for sticking with me for all of the episode plus five percent. Thanks, Jeff. Maybe even eight percent. Thank you, everyone, for listening all the way to the end. This has been episode 58 of the Tennis Abstract podcast and probably we'll have something for you this time next week. See you then.